Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. gentlemen and welcome to getting it out podcast that was buffalo new york spaced the song was landslide it's off of their upcoming album this is all we ever get it'll be released on march 22nd through the legendary revelation records that's the first single from the eight track album recorded with jay zubricki at gcr audio in buffalo new york It's also the album opener. So you'll know exactly what you get when you crack that bad boy open, but you're going to have to wait for the rest of that March 22nd. As I said, Revelation Records, are there going to be more singles? Maybe, maybe not. That's a lot of time between now and then. Two months to be almost exact, but not quite, kind of really. If you'd prefer some visual stimulation, you can go check out the music video for this. It features what they're calling Mosher Size and showcases several out-of-shape hardcore kids doing their best to make motions, and some of them even do okay. If you're familiar with any previous spaced material, I think you're going to like what you hear on the rest of the record. That's just a guess, though in press materials for the album, they do mention bands like Sonic Youth, My Bloody Valentine, The Cure, Swans, artsy fartsiness stuff like that so who knows where exactly they're headed but if uh hardcore of the last several years is any indication it can go anywhere but so far this track landslide pretty straightforward classic hardcore sounds like it should be on revelation records is on revelation records march 22nd that's when you can find this is all we ever get and what if it was what if that was it what if that's all you got 
And then Spaced bowed out and said, we're fucking out of here. We'll be back in 40 years. That's kind of what a lot of bands did in hardcore. Some unceremonious exits. I don't know exactly how the great Boston hardcore band DYS left us the first time around. I wasn't there. But I have been aware of their legendary record, Brotherhood. It was released in 1983 and was recently celebrated with a 40th anniversary courtesy of Bridge Nine Records. So I got together with bassist Jonathan Anastas to discuss the reissue, the legacy, and all things DYS. But first, it's Hot Zone, baby. Check it! I was kind of sure I was going to do some sort of a monologue here in the beginning about brotherhood, specifically the organic kind that comes from meeting friends, even more specifically in the hardcore scene, which is certainly something I do have a lot of experience with. Several of my best friends at certain periods in my life came directly from the hardcore scene. Of course, not all of those have lasted. Some have ended tragically. Some just fizzled away. But I'd say that's the general nature of friendships in anybody's lifetime. None of them at this point have lasted for 40 years because I am not 40 years old. Almost there. Don't worry. Less than a year to go. Over the hill. I remember when... My mom, who's a twin, I remember they had a over the hill birthday party for her and her brother. And that's funny to remember that. And now I am that age, too. Like I remember. So so now I got to be cognizant of the fact that my daughter remembers things. Now, I should have taken this into consideration a lot longer ago. But now officially my daughter, who's going to be 11 soon, is making memories. Yeah, this was happening a while ago. I should have made note of this. Anyway, back to my point, 40 years ago, a record called Brotherhood was released by a band from Boston named DYS. It's actually 41 years ago. 2023 was the official 40th anniversary for it, but we're calling it 40. Just sounds better, you know? And while the band did in fact have plans to reissue the record and had even announced some anniversary shows to acknowledge the milestone, Everything was canceled when vocalist Dave Smalley became sick with cancer. And while at this point it seems he's cancer free, he has been left with a boatload of medical bills. So to further incentivize the 40th anniversary release of Brotherhood, the band has decided that all proceeds will go to Dave Smalley's medical bills. That initial release was very successful. It came out officially on January 12th, just a couple of weeks ago through Bridge Nine Records. And it subsequently sold out. That's a thousand records out there in the hands of those who wanted them. And I'm told that on Friday, January 26th, there will be another pre-order available for the second pressing of the record in which the proceeds will continue to go to Dave Smalley's medical fund. It's a worthy cause if there ever was one. If you haven't picked one up, like myself, I need to get on that and I will on Friday. There are plenty of reasons to do so. One, to own a classic record in a new awesome format. The other is to support a band whose legacy deserves to be celebrated. And of course, the last and best reason 
is to help Dave Smalley. He's joined me on here in the past for a conversation between his recorded output with DYS, Dag Nasty, All, Down by Law, Don't Sleep, and more. He's brought me a lot of joy in my life. Honestly, can I say is like a top five record for me, and I will never change my opinion on that. But now it's time to talk about DYS and brotherhood. And what better way to get in this conversation with Jonathan Anastas than the song Brotherhood from the album Brotherhood by DYS. it was a couple weeks ago when I got an email about DYS reissuing Brotherhood. But then I saw it was marked as the 40th anniversary. I thought that makes sense. How long has this been in the works? How long have you known you were going to do a 40th reissue or Brotherhood? We'd been talking about doing a 40th reissue. I mean, it's not like some incredible timeline, but you know, for the last year, looking for the right home, trying to figure out the right packaging behind it. You know, unlike a band like SSD, where the record was one and done and hadn't been back for its entirety, this record had been repackaged and re-released in a couple of different formats. So we wanted to definitely do something unique and special to honor it as opposed to just kind of bringing it back. And a lot of those reissues and repressings had sort of been done with our our authorization in ways that we wouldn't have done it. So we definitely wanted to make sure we got all the details right on that. And Chris Wren and Bridge Nine are an incredible team. And it was sort of a late decision to switch to a one-sided record with a picture disc, you know, printing on the other side. And it was interesting, right? Good ideas can come from anywhere at any time. And I give Chris Wren all the credit for that. At some point, I just got an email from him and he's like, I've been thinking the record's 17 minutes, which gives us an opportunity to print it all on one side and, you know, do something graphic on the other. And the light bulb just went off. It's a perfect idea. It would actually be the greatest differentiator from, from the prior versions of it to really set it apart. So uh, I give Chris 99.99% of the credit for how this packaging came out. And we're super happy about it. He's got plenty of experience in putting out uh, high quality records, especially, uh, I mean, I talked to him about this time a year ago for one of these, and we were just talking about the way he's figured out how to reissue things. Um, you mentioned the the record's been put out several times by several different places, people, entities, whatever. Has the, uh, I say it correctly, was the, this brotherhood like owned by anyone? Do you guys have it? Is it uh, licensed through, like, where does that, live now so you know it's funny when we think about how none of us thought these records would have the shelf lives that they did (laughs) right and we were all kids i think i was 15 when the record got recorded so the history of 
contracts and, you know, legalities and all that stuff is, you know, somewhat vague, right? There's, uh, you know, paperwork wasn't what it was. The original pressing was on X-Claim. Mm-hmm. X-Claim wasn't really a record label as much as it was uh, a brand, an imprint, an indication of quality from a certain city at a certain time. And what I mean by that is Al Baril did not put the records out. You sort of went to Al and said, I would like this to be on X claim. And it was almost like instead of being a record label, you were licensing back gratis the X claim logo, if that makes any sense, right? Typical record deal, record label. Here's a record. You put it out, you press it, you distribute it, you design it. You know, you send money back to us. X claim was we banned, put out record ourselves, asked exclaim for permission to use their mark. Obviously, we didn't know language like that back then. If it meets some sort of philosophical quality level that exclaim feels that they want to be involved in it, they say, yes, you get logo file. Probably not even files at the time, right? You get yeah. logo, you put logo on your record. You don't pay them. They don't pay you, if that makes any sense at all. Um, yeah. So that was the original incarnation of it, right? So so Al is sort of imprinting a seal of quality on, you know, like the a GIS cosign. record. Yeah. yeah, The GIS record, the FU's record, the Jerry's Kids record, whatever, right? Um, and then, you know, and, and I own responsibility for sort of where it goes off the rails. You know, in, in the 90s, I'm starting my career. Dave Smalley's working in his career. He's in Dag Nasties and all. Hang comes along and says, we'd like to keep these records in print. I'm not as savvy as a business person. You know, I'm very recently out of college, hadn't thought about music in a long time. We put together what probably wasn't a very good deal. And we're off doing our lives and Tang does what Tang does. And they package a bunch of stuff. And and actually in violation of the contract, we're supposed to get artist approval on all things, right? Like what the cover looks like, what the back cover looks like, how it gets put together. You know, I'm off trying to build my career. I, I think at this time, sort of in the nineties, I'm never going to play music again. It's nice to have this sort of legacy out there, but I'm not really thinking about it from a legacy perspective. I'm not thinking about it in terms of the band will ever be back together perspective. And I'm focused on trying to build a career and things appear, right? Like Brotherhood and the second record get put together at Fire and Ice. We never really signed off on that. That confused people. It gets reissued as Wolfpack, but it's really Brotherhood with different packaging. We don't really sign off on that. The band reunites. We do a live record on Bridge Nine. We're not playing shows. Uh, Another, what I would call the actual first sort of repressing of Brotherhood reappears. We signed off on that. It's a very straightforward repressing. We never get paid for that. Um, so, you know, we're sort of a, we're at this point now where we live in a world of, you know, the law of the 35 year master revision, right? Where the rights revert back to the owner after 35 years. And we live in a world where that second contract with Tang is deeply in breach. And so I have taken back those rights out of the 35 year master revision law and, you know, breach it at least five levels. And we've given it to bridge nine for this re-release. And, you know, our experience with bridge nine is bridge nine. We did a merch deal with bridge nine when we originally reunited in 2009. And then we did a live record with bridge nine. 
And, you know, Christian is an amazing businessman, a straight up fan. And what I really like about what Bridge Nine does is some of these legacy labels think only in the old ways, right? And think only in terms of old bands. And then there's sort of new, young, punk and hardcore and metal labels that do things a new way. Chris bridges those two perfectly, where his marketing ideas, his packaging ideas aren't cast in some ancient amber, right? It's informed by current, he's got current bands on the label. He understands the past and he understands the present. And that's kind of like a perfect combination for us, mm-hmm. as opposed to like a band who's sort of stuck in how things were done, uh, a label who is stuck in how things were done 30 years ago, right? Or a label that doesn't really understand what the past was like. And so Bridge Nine was an ideal place for this to happen with a guy that I've got a lot of respect for who we've been doing business with for the last decade since we reformed. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great place for it. And it's really... Uh, not funny, haha, but funny to hear all this official and legal talk about a fucking hardcore punk record, you know. <laughs> but part of the thing was some of the things you mentioned there, like like the uh, reissuing of Brotherhood as Wolfpack and those things like that, really confused me when I was younger. I didn't know, you know, before I really figured out the power of the internet and how to look back and all that information was readily available. How to look back on old bands that were before me to get the information it was a little confusing so uh the idea of just reissuing brotherhood as brotherhood is awesome and it's long been regarded as an essential boston hardcore record you mentioned some of the other bands at the time was there a band back then when you were recording brotherhood that there was a primary like these are the things the sounds that we want to have on this record well first just to go back to your other point i have to look in the mirror and take a good piece of the blame for sort of the confusion and how things came out. Like I can say a record label did this and we never had permission and a record label never showed us that we never had permission, but it, you know, ultimately we were the keepers of the legacy and we took the, our eye off the ball and we made bad deals. And so sort of like, ultimately we allowed this all to happen. And I feel badly about that as sort of like the keeper of the legacy here, you know, certainly hang bears a big share of the burden and, and, and the blame and and not paying for over a decade. Right. Like, you know, if I, if I needed to live off this and it's funny, you talk about legalese and nobody ever thought about that at hardcore. Yeah. Nobody's making any kind of huge money off this stuff, but what I feel most badly for is not bands in our situation, but bands in the situation where people are living somewhat desperate lives of very limited means. And, you know, a fair reckoning of the few thousand records they sell a year would be meaningful to their lives, right? They have medical expenses, they've got family expenses, and we're fortunate enough not to be in that situation, but I feel very badly for those bands in that situation. And that's why I have a ton of respect for people like Chris and also for people like Joe Nelson, you know, over at Trust, who are sort of even going one step beyond where they're going back, they're going out and like, purchasing catalogs, right. And like purchasing publishing and trying to make it all right. And bringing to bear, you know, 21st century real music industry attorney like work to go back and right all those wrongs. Right. So, so I, I think that stuff is actually really important because there's people out there who put their hearts and souls and lives and, and chose creative lives that don't shed a lot of money who, you know, are in tough situations right now. And I have a lot of heart for that, but on to your second question, you know, I was 15 years old. Dave Smalley was maybe 17 years old. My only experience in a recording studio prior to recording brotherhood was to record lamb 
for the Boston out LA soundtrack as decadence. And, you know, in the same way that there were very few clubs that would book hardcore bands back then, there were very few recording studios that were either within our financial means, you know, there was like a 24 track recording studio on Newbury street that none of us could ever afford. And they would scoff at us and never allow us in there anyway. Right. And then there were like, you know, the sort of indie punk studios that were doing the early Boston stuff. And I think most of Boston on LA had been tracked at radio B in Boston. So we knew of it. And Lou Giordano he was the engineer, like the house engineer, a guy, Jimmy Dufour owned the studio. Lou Giordano ended up with a fairly significant canon of work and respect, right? He ended up working with Husker Du and sort of post-hardcore noise stuff. And, and sort of just by luck, we were lucky enough to have a guy like Lou as the house engineer at Radio Beat. And our only kind of sonic comparisons at that point were probably like, at least for us, early Black Flag records, you know, recorded by, you know, produced by Spot. You had the Discord stuff, you know, done by Don at Inner Ear. What we heard from like SSD and Kids Will Have Their Say and Boston at LA is probably like really the only kind of sonic targets we had, right? You know, we had Clash Records, we had Sex Pistols Records. Those were actually made within the, you know, major label world by, you know, named producers. You know, ultimately the Clash's second record was produced by the same guy who did Blue Oyster Cult, right? <laughs> you know, so th- so that that was kind of like our very limited initial sonic bullseye, right? Could this sound better than Boston on LA? Could we try to make it sound as heavy as those, you know, early Black Flag recordings, et cetera? I noticed you didn't mention anything about the New York stuff at the time. And there was always this, uh, what we were told, like beef between the scenes. Is Or is that just because there wasn't a lot of recorded stuff back then? I believe, if my memory is accurate, there actually wasn't a lot of... The New York stuff lagged later. Like, I'll give New York a ton of credit. Like, when we were doing our second record, and I hear, you know, sort of facing our first record, like... Age of Quarrel meant something, right? Like the way it came out and the way it sounded and sort of setting a blueprint for crossover. Mm-hmm. So New York has its role, but it's a little later. But I would say, you know, Age of Quarrel was as important in setting a blueprint for what crossover should sound like as, you know, those early Discord records were for what Hardcore did. So there's no beef in terms of not having a sonic target for the first record. I don't think there was much of a, there was punk out of New York at that time, but I'm not sure there was a lot of hardcore, right? So unless you're saying, did you want to sound like a New York Dolls record, right? And we're doing like a very different thing. Or do you want to sound like a Ramones record and they're working with Phil Spector? So again, that's about 50 levels above where we're thinking Um, is the only reason I didn't mention New York. Well, I, I hear a lot of the, you know, when I listen to Brotherhood, I hear a lot of the Discord stuff, like you said. Um, and uh, I think it's a it's a very, I, I don't mean it in a bad way, dated sound. Like it's a, it's such of an era that that I think it makes me appreciate it more because bands have tr- have been influenced by bands like D- DYS or Minor Threat or whatever and carried that over throughout the years. But it doesn't nobody's ever sounded like bands back then like you guys sounded back then again it's and i don't know if that's due to like limitations in recording or just you know i don't know what i don't know what it is but sonically you have your own uh your own fingerprint from that era and i think that's very cool and glad to see it represented still and people still want it obviously people still want it and that's obvious because today this morning i went to uh go pre-order this for myself and it's sold out so that's <laughs> there's proof there 
I mean, it's interesting to talk about the limitation. So here's what I would say. We had such a limited vocabulary and such an experience and limited means like a certain number of studio days that the prime directive sadly was, can we get a take without a mistake? Right. Yeah. You, you know, like it, it's not, can we get, you know, 15 versions? You know, I, I, I feel this from Brian Baker a little. I remember watching American hardcore and Brian's so great about this stuff where he's like, you know, we're sitting in the studio back then and nobody's like, are you in the pocket or like, can you get ahead of that groove a little bit? Like, you know, it's using Brian's language from American hardcore, but we're not having those conversations. Like it's literally like take, playback was there a was there an egregious error in that version <laughs> right you know move forward like we did a certain amount of work like trying to get sounds but we weren't like sort of a b testing like you know we were fortunate enough you know when dys reforms it's a totally different world like you know we're working with a guy mudrock with platinum records on their wall who interestingly came from that world but you know later we're a being like a marshall 2204 versus like a friedman brown eye Versus like a Marshall 2205 and I'm like, am I going to play the 74 jazz or like the 76 precision? None of those conversations, you know, <laughs> back then. And, and I will say like, we struggled with the guitar sound on that record then. And I'm still not happy with it. Industry and the guitar player is not happy with it. So, you know, there were certain limitations, right? We we're trying to get done. I'm, I'm going to make this number up. Say we had $2,000, right? We're trying to come up with like the best product in an eight track studio for $2,000. <laughs> well, I got I mean, you got to say it, it worked out. You more than maybe not you, maybe not into your pocket or anybody in particular, but more than $2,000 has been made from this record since then. So I think in that way, it, it might be considered a success, uh, if not for its legacy alone. What do you remember most fondly about the recording and release of Brotherhood? What I remember most fondly about the recording was like the opportunity to, to actually make a record, right? You know, like the first thing I wanted to be was a rock star. And what was great about hardcore is it made it achievable. It seemed like it, you set a bar. Like, I, you know, I was, uh, I grew up in Boston. I was a huge Aerosmith fan, right? You know, if I sat down in my basement and tried to figure out how to play Seasons of Wither, it's over my head. It's never going to get, you know, it's, it's daunting. Even Kiss, you know, which is simpler is like daunting. And then you kind of hear like a Ramones record and you're like, you know, 15 minutes later, you're kind of playing three Ramones songs and you can figure it out. And this idea of like, like making a record and being there with your friends, your brothers, your brotherhood, which is real. I mean, a band is like a family, right? A band is like a gang and sitting there with my gang trying to make a record and get through it and try to work through the creative process as best as we could with our limited understanding of that process is probably my favorite memory. I mean, I remember frustrations, right? Like, why doesn't that guitar sound the way it is? Or like, why does that, you know, but we didn't have, even have the vocabulary. The proudest moment for me actually was like the delivery of the record itself. Like we made a record like DIY. We figured out how to raise enough money, figure it out. And, you know, you think in those days, like, and, and you just pass this information, right? Like at some point, maybe we found out from Al, you print sleeves in Canada because they're cheaper or also, you know, you said you're in the printing business, right? Or like yeah. this idea that Al got, I think from Ian Mackay, which is like you print twice as many covers as you are records because of the minimum cost per unit and so i think you know every exclaim record there was twice as many covers printed as there were records because we were told by 
Al through Ian that that's how Discord did it, right? Um, so you, and also then if you repress it, you already had the other thousand sleeves and right the cost per unit on 2000 sleeves is half of that of if you printed 1000 sleeves or whatever. But I just remember when we went to the pressing plant in New Jersey and we, you know, and it's only 2000 records, but like we look at this little pallet and a loading thing and you take a, you know, an exacto knife, not exacto knife, but, you know, box cutter. And you like, you open the first one and you pick it up and it's shrink wrapped. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's like, it's like birthing a baby, you know, it's like we made this and it's like physical and it's tangible and it's in our hands. And like, somehow we raised the money and we did it is the thing that like stands out to me the most. And I remember kind of driving home from New Jersey. And again, with this stuff we learned from other people, like, you know, there were like a certain number of distributors and okay, we're going to drop 500 to Caroline, you know, which is like 45 minutes away. And we're going to drop a hundred at rat cage records, you know, in the city and, you know, and the idea of trying to get, and again, I don't know if we got this from SSD or whatever, but the idea of trying to get home with as few records as possible, mm-hmm. right. And ha- trying to actually sell as many as you could, as you're getting home, it, like that's the process that I remember that kind of stands out to me. That's very cool. Did you do like, was it like consignment? Did you drop them off and they paid you later? Oh gosh. I don't know if it was consignment or sort of terms here. You're, you're stretching my memory. You know, I think (laughs) there was the right to return at that point. Right. I mean, it's like anything like, you know, in the world of records before streaming, there were returns. I can't remember if they paid you in advance, but they had the right to return or if you were on 30 day or 60 day or 90 day or whatever. I'm sure we didn't walk home with a with a bucket of cash. Right. But, you know, but the strange thing is like people were for the most part, surprisingly honest then, you know, you'd get like a money order from like rat cage records for like, we sold 30 records, you know, or whatever, or, or Caroline, like, you know, they were, they were legitimate businesses or for the most part were, were, were honest, you know? Uh, and that's cool to hear that kind of, that kind of behind the scenes talk that, uh, I mean, I guess a lot of people, I guess it still exists right to a degree. Just, um, it's different now, maybe easier, maybe not. I don't know. The look of of Brotherhood has always been iconic, the album cover. And I've never even bothered to look it up. Where do where does that art come from? And why another question moment that why is DYS so small? It's so funny. I I don't even know. I, I couldn't even tell you the decision of why DYS was so small. I, I, you know, I'm a barely a teenager then we're trying to figure all this stuff out what i've learned in my life later is like you try to surround yourself with creative people and you try to empower creative people to do the best creative work possible and then you sort of work as like an arbiter of like did what they deliver back work for my business goals work for my creative goals work for my vision goals or whatever so i think at some point the decision was to name the record brotherhood that was a band decision and then it's like 
well, what's the best manifestation of brotherhood, right? What does brotherhood mean? How do we bring that alive visually? We're asking around and asking different people. And that concept was kind of delivered back to us whole by Dickie Barrett from the Boston's. That's his art. It was his idea. My recollection is like, in essence, monks are a, are a brotherhood and became a metaphor for brothers. And there were four of us and four monks. And I, I think that was Dickie's concept. And it was Dickie's. Like, we didn't go to Dickie and say, draw us monks, monks are brotherhood. We came to Dickie and said, do you have any ideas? Like we want to call the record brotherhood. And that's what we got back. I'm sure we just got back from him a piece of key art as we didn't even know that it was called then like without the, he didn't deliver it with a brotherhood on it and the DYS on it. And I couldn't even tell you why the name was teeny and the, <laughs> the brotherhood was big. <laughs> Did that, has that created confusion over the years with people? Do people think it's a DYS by brotherhood? I don't recall that confusion at the time. I mean, maybe. I mean, we were clearly terrible branders, right? We we're like trying to brand the name of the record bigger, bigger than the band. I mean, I know later there was a band called Brotherhood, and maybe in a bunch of record, you know, flipping through a record store twenty years later, that becomes a problem. But I don't remember anybody saying to us at the time, "Why is DYS so small?" <laughs> well, I, that's really interesting. That it was Dicky. I had no idea it was Dicky, uh, and I love the Ballstones, so that's that's a very cool. Uh, piece of information. I'm sure it was out there. I'm sure other people do know that, but uh, that was, that's new to me. And you know, the, the, the hooded figure on the cover of hardcore records really became a thing. And I don't know if this is the first one, but I like to think that it is. I think it may have been. And, you know, uh, without sort of patting ourselves in the back, what we've been told, and it's been told a lot of times in interviews by guys like Porcel is that, whole idea of like hardcore kids in hoodies sort of, you know, everybody's looking for every clue to everything. Like in the way I poured over the back of like every black flag record and every discord record and poured through every page of Thrasher magazine, people went through the back of the record for every detail. And what does that mean? And I just remember kids asking, why did you have a Santa Cruz sticker on your base? Right. Were you a skater? And this idea of like a hardcore band in hoodies and, you know, uh, early Nikes and, you know, things like that sort of became a, it, be, it, it became a, a roadmap to some degree. It did. It did. But uh, I don't think I ever noticed until recently that that's not what the hooded figures are wearing on the show. Like it's so ingrained in my mind that you're just wearing like, you know, a sports hoodie and jeans and, you know, sneakers, but no, they, they do have a ro looks like rope belts and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's, the hoodie is an interesting thing, right? The hoodie is so iconic. Like the hoodie went from punk rock to hip hop to high fashion to, you know, <laughs> you know one, of, one of my neighbors has made, you know, more money than, than most people in, in America selling very expensive streetwear hoodies. You know, it's, it's this thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's essential. It's, it's yes. become essential for everybody, all ages. Um, the, you mentioned the previous uh, reunions you did with DYS, which I think I caught uh, in Baltimore with Antidote and maybe Face Value as well, back when that happened. Anyway, um, how did that go over at the time? You, you released the record, you played a bunch of shows. Did it seem like a good idea at the end when you were done? Yeah, and, and really, we've only been done recently because of Dave's health issues. So the funny thing about the reunion is... The original concept of the reunion was to be for one show, was to be for that all ages, you know, Gallery East reunion. And, and frankly, the driver for that for me was 
we predated HD video. And so for me, the thing was like, there was never any HD video of DYS. And just honestly, for myself and for my legacy and to show my son, the idea of walking away with a six camera HD shoot of DYS was 100% the only motivation, right? Not celebrating the band, not celebrating the legacy. And I take this stuff really seriously. And I put together a band based in Boston, right? Cause I think it's like a one and done. And I think I flew to Boston nine times to rehearse. You know, we did like, you know, we rehearsed, like we took it seriously for real. And I thought it was supposed to be a one and done. And, and I think we did a pretty good job for a band that hadn't been together for 20 years. And again, thought it was only going to be once. And we had Dickie Barrett introduce us. And Dickie comes to us the day after the show and he goes, Hey, you know, like it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. I didn't know what to expect. It was really good. Would you guys want to play our hometown throwdown? Um, you know, they used to play like a stand of five nights at, uh, at the house of blues in Boston. And, you know, my aspirations were always big, right? Like I, you know, we sort of tried to become a metal band. You want to, you know, you want to put your art in front of as many people as possible. So I'm thinking like, wow, we just did a sold out show for 1100 people. Now we have a chance to play in front of 2,500 people on. So we go do that. It's within a couple months. We just try to keep it fresh. And then people start calling and more shows start happening. And Ross Luongo, the original guitar player, got transferred. He's an executive at Adidas. He's a very successful executive at Adidas. He's playing in Jerry's Kids. He gets transferred to Europe. So he can't be in the band. So we audition a bunch of other lead guitar players. I mean, it's interesting. Maybe a, a whole bunch of people who ended up doing great things we, we talked to. But it ended up being sort of like as this band became real as a reunion to put an L.A.-based band together. And so we ended up with Ron Stahl from Scream and Foo Fighters on guitar. Al Pahanish, who is from Boston, went to Berkeley. He's actually a Pennsylvania guy, but he went, he moved to Boston, went to Berkeley, formed Power Man 5000, had a platinum record, toured the world. I'd kind of met him when Power Man moved to LA after going platinum. A kid, Adam Porras, who went to Berkeley in Boston, who was in a band uh, far from finished. And we put an LA based band together because the idea is like, I live in LA, like, the way it would work is the band would rehearse. We'd get tight. We'd fly to wherever first show was the day before it was supposed to happen. Smalley would come in. We'd rehearse with Smalley. We'd roll, right? So like the LA band just stayed as a unit. And that ended up being the lineup for a decade. Like the crazy thing to me is these guys that have been playing together with for a decade, I played together with longer than the first lineup of DYS, longer than the second lineup of DYS. They're exceptional musicians. They're exceptional people. I've learned a ton about music, you know, playing with guys who have done it professionally for 30 years at the highest level. You know, I'm the weak link musically. Absolutely. But what I loved was learning from those guys, being on stage with those guys. And as we started to write again, which, you know, the funny thing for a legacy band is always like, does anybody want to hear anything new? I actually had the the co-patriots, right? The bandmates, the means, and the understanding to actually kind of go about it the way maybe I would have wanted to go about it the first time, right? Where now we're in a studio situation where we can make some choices, you know, technology has changed, our, our writing has progressed, you know, what I would say, whether people are love it or hate it about what I would call sort of phase three DYS, which is hard, right? So phase one is like straight up hardcore and phase two 
is like early crossover. And even when we did a reunion, like this idea of how to bridge those things together. And we bridged those things together with the reunion set by blowing the first record down, beating the second record up, having Dave sing the second record an octave lower, you know, trying to finesse some of the arrangements on the first record to make those songs into actual songs. You know, like if you think about Wolfpack, it was like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, done. And now Wolfpack is like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown in the middle, chorus, chorus, out, right? Like more like a real song and sort of bringing them together. What would a band that went through those two incarnations do and, you know, I sort of think, feel like phase three DYS is like we're wearing our hardcore, our punk rock and our rock and roll influences on our sleeve and kind of putting them together, which is how phase three DYS sounds to me. Um, and, and I get that it's very different for either fans of phase one or phase two, but it was the it was the opportunity to work with great people and actually like, again, have the vocabulary and the means to do it maybe the way you wanted to do it. Like people might argue, but I think it's the best songwriting and production we did. I think that'd be accurate. But one thing I found interesting about the way you guys did do things then is that you released all singles. Why did you go that route? That was me actually trying to lean in and test to like how the music industry had changed. Right. You, you know, hip hop did a much better, like, I believe rock music became largely irrelevant for sticking with the old way aggressively and refusing to lean into how the world was going. Right. The world was going streaming at that time. I'm looking at hip hop artists who remain relevant by like they're dropping singles all the time. They're not dropping albums. This idea of like package 12 songs you know, drop them, tour them behind a year, go in a studio, drop 12 songs, isn't necessarily relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, it was this idea of like, well, okay, we're, we're, we're doing like, it's a contemporary times. Let's try to t- test contemporary ideas around distribution. So it was almost like a hip hop model, you, you know, like a Cardi B tries to either guest or drop on a track a month. It seemed like at that time. So it was this idea of like how to, be relevant and, 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 you know, move with the times and experiment, you know, and I will also say what you see now is this idea. I don't think the consumer necessarily has the mental bandwidth and time for 10 songs. So even if people aren't dropping singles, what seems to be the new model and hardcore is your first drop as an EP, right? There's a lot more EPs. And I think that's another very valid way to deal with like limited attention span, right? Like, and you think about like, almost all these new hardcore bands now are dropping an EP to start. And I think that's much smarter given, you know, where people's attention span is today than dropping a record. I'm not sure a record is particularly relevant or, you know, even like, like, like dropping a legacy record is almost like an artifact, a totem. It's like a, an acknowledgement and supporting a fandom as opposed to like an act of discovery. And I think if you're doing something new, 10 songs is just overwhelming. Like I, I remember my version is like when I, I got use your illusion one and two, I don't think I ever got through all 40 songs even then. Right. It was just like, like too much, too to, much. to think yeah. about too much to think about. Well, that's, I always say, I want my heart. I want my hardcore to be in EP form. That's you yes. know very, there's, there's very few great hardcore LPs. I guess you guys actually have one of them. Um, but I mean, very few, I could probably count a hundred. Yeah. I have counted a hundred, you know, yeah. but, but uh, you know what I mean? Um, uh, I want to touch on the fact that this, reissue all the proceeds are going to benefit Dave and his uh, health issues. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. You know, we probably could have done a better job talking about it earlier. Dave's a very private person and we tried to respect that. So when we first put this idea together, those health issues weren't on the table. So, you know, you know the plan was we were going to do a very limited number of live shows in November around releasing the record in November and the, and the record was supposed to be released in November. Dave over the summer had a bout of cancer that, you know, required him to cancel a don't sleep or and one of his other bands. He assured me through all this, like, we're great. I'll be good for the fall. My doctors say I'll be good for the fall. And he was tracking to be good for the fall. He is cancer free, thank God, but some complications around the treatment um, have really sort of put him on his heels. And that made us pivot out of a November release into technically a January release, though pre-orders are in December. And again, I just sort of said to Chris, I was like, it's really important to me that like the 40th honor the 40th. So can you at least start the pre-orders in December? So we're like honoring the 40th on, on one level. Um, and it required us, unfortunately, to cancel the shows and, you know, which we were really looking forward to, you know, Dave is, Still in the hospital. He's been in the hospital for almost a month, this stint. And it just seemed like the right thing to do for, you know, for my friend and brother of 40 years to just sort of say, like, you know, the money's going to go to you. You're going to have, you know, Dave's lucky. Dave has good health insurance, which I know, you know, a whole bunch of people in America don't have. But even when you have good health insurance in America, you're looking at like an 80 20 situation, right? Where like, 20% comes out of your pocket. And if you're in the hospital for two out of the last three months, that's not an insignificant amount of money, even for a guy with very good health insurance. So, you know, Dave's got five kids, you know, a lot of them are adults, but still. So, you know, it's important for me that Dave not be, you know, able to stay on top of his medical treatment, you know, not be, forced into bankruptcy by, you know, medical bills, et cetera. So that, that's the initial plan. If at a certain point of time, it's decided that a benefit show would be important to help Dave out, you know, DYS is deep on that along with whatever other projects, you know, he's participated in the years that want to be part of that. I, by the way, I'm not calling that shot. I'm just simply saying I'm here to help in, in, in any way possible. If that's, if that's where this whole thing goes. Right. Well, I think, I think it's a, uh... Maybe it's just because I've lived in it my whole life, but I've always been and continue to be impressed with the way that people and the musicians in hardcore punk rock are always willing to come together, do benefit shows, do things like this, release a record and have all the proceeds go to help someone out. I don't think you find that in other scenes. I could be wrong, but I, in my experience, I don't see it that way. I, you know, I think the community was the most important draw to me. So thank you for recognizing that. Like I'm a kid whose life could have gone totally the other way. You know, I, I sort of came to hardcore and punk, like as a disaffected teenager, like a lot of people do. And just thank God that like, I somehow stumbled into a positively focused straight edge scene where the peer pressure around me was like, be aware, don't drink, take responsibilities for your action do things yourself, like work ethic. I could have very easily have stumbled into a different show where it was like, shoot heroin, you know, <laughs> live in squats, steal, 
right? <laughs> and a certain number of disaffected kids end up in that world. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a particularly religious person or believe in like divine power, but like literally it's like this, you know, rebellious kid coming in from the suburbs and going into Boston. Like I could have walked in that door or I could have walked in that door. And for whatever reason, I walked into the more positive door. And so what I've just tried to do is like be that more positive door and give back to the degree that's possible. You know, like we were not famous at any big level by even hardcore standards, but a few times a year, somebody will come up to me and say, your music inspired me to stop drinking, to give up drugs, to get my life together. You know, you were a turning point for me. And that means a ton for me, especially as a dad. And so all I'm trying to do is like, if I can be that positive light and that positive motivator and sort of like put out a message of like, don't do drugs as opposed to do drugs or like don't drink as opposed to drink or like, you know, live a responsible driven life as opposed to like steal. I'm all in. Since, the, since, like I said, the first pressings already sold out, is there plans to do more? Is there plans to do Absolutely. other pressings? Yeah. Absolutely. Chris is committed to keeping this record in print. You know, he and I have sort of talked about, you know, I think Trust Records does this incredible job with SSD, right? Where there's like nine different versions and everyone's different and everyone's unique and Cortex got this and, you know, Southern Lord got that and Trust got that. So Chris is committed to keeping this record in print and, and and doing right by this legacy. And so, you know, if we did red and clear for the first pressing, we're cooking up some ideas as to what pressing two would look like. And it's going to honor the same format. But, you know, for people who are collectors or who missed out, there'll be something slightly different and special about a repress. <laughs> There you have it. That was my conversation with Jonathan Anastas of DYS, also formerly of Slapshot, was on the great Back on the Map record. And the song you just heard was what we'll call the hit from DYS's Brotherhood. That was more than fashion. I want to thank Jonathan for his time, for his conversation, for his artistic output. I have consumed it for many, many years, and I greatly appreciate it. And also his kindness. Nice guy to have a little lunchtime chat with, as I did when we had this conversation. 
I want to thank you, of course, for listening this far into the podcast. Not everybody makes it to the end. Not everybody makes it through the music. I realize that's a bit of a barrier. If you don't want a barrier on your Getting It Out podcast anymore, you can sign up for the Patreon. The Patreon, here's what the episodes are. It's that hot zone intro. Get it out that and then the conversation. That's it. No fluff, no beginning, no end. Just me talking to the guest. That's it. Easy in, easy out. You can get those episodes for just $2 a month. You could have heard this one over a week ago on there and you wouldn't have to hear me talk like this. Seems nice, right? As I like to keep repeating to anybody and everybody who will listen, I'll never know if you don't sign up, but I will if you do and I will greatly appreciate it. Speaking of things to appreciate, on this Friday, January 26th, along with the second pressing of DYS Brotherhood, there will be a new hardcore punk record from Bib. They're a band from Omaha, Nebraska. They've got a new EP called Biblical. It's coming out through Quality Control HQ. And they've got a noisy, raw brand of hardcore punk. And I'm going to play you actually two tracks from them right now. This is Two-Faced Planet and Bitter Mind. If you want more information on the band, please go to gettingitout.net. Check out what's going on there. Got an artist page available for them. They were on a recent edition of the New Around Here article where you can find new bands for yourself to check out. That's going to be it for this one. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.